Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening and welcome everyone to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Buffy Wicks and I represent the beautiful East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond area in the State Assembly. And I am pleased to be the moderator tonight, moderating for my dear friend Dan Pfeiffer, who I've known for 15 years. A long time, yeah. Something like that. Uh, let's, let's not age ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Dan is one of the co-hosts of Pod Save America. Maybe you all have heard of it. Pod Save America. <laughs> and he was one of President Obama's longest serving advisors working on both presidential campaigns and spending six years in the White House as the communications director and a senior advisor to President Obama, who we miss every single day. <laughs> And he wrote a book. Here it is. Many of you probably have it. Uh, yes, we still can. Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. And it is a New York Times number one bestseller, wow. now out in paperback. So buy the book if you haven't already. And Thank you for that. That's always very important. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to plug. Yes. yes. <laughs> and yes, we still can, which I'm sure many of you have read, is a colorful account of how politics, the media, and the internet changed during the Obama presidency alongside the evolution of social media. And it has a lot of the sort of behind-the-scenes stories. Um, Dan recounts how President Obama navigated the chaotic political forces of Twitter trolls <laughs> and Fox News, which is an environment that now has resulted in, unfortunately, Donald Trump. Um, and so we're very excited to have Dan with us today. Tonight, please join me in a warm welcome for Mr. Dan Pfeiffer. So, Dan, can you talk to us a little bit about why you wrote the book and what is the core thesis that you're presenting? Sure. So, as Buffy mentioned, I worked in the White House for a long time. And when I eventually left in 2015 to move to California, um, I had the usual sort of White House exit process, which is you turn in your BlackBerry, because that's what we used back then. <laughs> you have to sign all this paperwork, giving up your uh, top secret clearance. you got to pack up a box. You walk out the door. And when you walk out the front gates of the White House, some a representative of the public publishing industry meets you and tries to convince you to write a book. And at the time, I didn't have another job or stream of income. And so I contemplated the idea of writing a book. I was like, I thought this would be... Like, I thought two things. One, I had read a lot of the books that people had written while I was in the White House, the books told by reporters, people like Bob Woodward. And I always thought that they were like this funhouse mirror version of what we had gone through. And I was like, maybe I could tell a story that would help people understand what it was like to be in the White House. But as I was doing the, going through this process in 2015, I couldn't figure out like what, my, what would be the unique perspective that I would offer. I knew President Obama was going to write a book. I knew that the First Lady would write a book. My friend David Axelrod had just written a book. And so there were a lot of people who were going to tell these stories. And I didn't know what my unique piece was. Flash forward to the day after the election, 2016. I had sort of this – I had gone – woken up on election day so confident that Hillary was going to win. Just I felt so good about it. And I am a person who, even in elections where it is a virtual mathematical certainty – that my favorite candidate would win, I would spend most of election day concocting, pacing around angrily and aggressively and concocting theories in my head for how my candidate could lose. This was the one time where I was optimistic. Lesson learned. And, <laughs> and but I, as I saw the horror unfold that night and I went to bed to not really sleep for a few hours, I woke up the next morning and it all sort of made sense. I sort of saw that what, a lot of the political forces that we were dealing with in the Obama White House, the changes in media, the radicalization of the Republican Party, the use of race as an explicit rallying cry to turn out voters, the things that Trump had used to win were the same forces that we've been dealing with. And so the story that I wanted to tell was one about how we navigated those forces and for how President Obama did it, how we did the things we did right, the things we did wrong, and try to extract from that some, lection, some lessons for Democrats, both for 2018, worked, and the 2020, TBD. Yes, <laughs> but I have hope. Um, 
fingers crossed. Um, so you talk about kind of how social media has evolved. And, you know, when we look at 2016 in particular, how misinformation spreads so quickly, how in a 2020 environment do you think we can combat that inaccuracy that flows so quickly and voters are making up their minds reading some of this information? How do we combat that? I mean, this is the $10,000 question, I guess, or the $100,000 question. I think there's a couple of different elements to this. I mean, and it's worth, you got to kind of, when people say misinformation or disinformation, you got to kind of separate the different strands of it, right? There is the stuff that Russia does, right? Which is basically cyber, a cyber attack on our election, not hacking our voting system, which is something they may also, they try to do and may also try to do again, but basically using social media to weaponize division in the American people. And so that is one thing. And the tech platforms have done, tried to take some steps to stop that. They're at least aware of it this time. I think there are some hit or miss things there. And then there's just the general straight out of the White House amplified by Fox News propaganda, mm-hmm. right? That it, that lies about what's happening in America, that lies about what Trump's doing, that acts as if the economy was terrible when Obama was there and great when Trump was there and that the Russia thing's all a hoax. And I think there's, for Democrats to combat that piece of it, there needs to be a fundamental shift in our mentality, right? Sort of the traditional way that there are sort of two traditional rules by which communi- political communications professionals would, would face these sort of things. One would be there's this crazy conspiracy theory spreading that, you know, Hillary Clinton was endorsed by ISIS. And if you're sitting in the Clinton campaign and you're thinking about the old playbook, you would say the last thing we want to do is talk about this publicly and draw more attention to it. We want to starve the story of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And that did make sense in a pre-Facebook Twitter world where if you, the only way people were getting this information was through the newspapers and TV. And if Hillary Clinton makes a statement that she's not endorsed by ISIS, now every TV station has to cover it. More people see it. Different world now. And then the other piece of the other strategy you would use is, so let's say you cross the Rubicon, you say we have, this is, this has gained enough currency or enough attention that we have to deal with it. How are we going to deal with it? We're going to do a press conference. We're going to tell the New York Times, CNN, the San Francisco Chronicle, everyone else, the truth. And then we're going to pick up the newspaper. We're going to see that that story is in there. We're going to go back to office. We're going to pat ourselves in the back and say we're done. And I think for Democrats have to now think about what happens between when they say the piece, when they say the story, the piece of information out loud to reporters and how it and how it gets from that media outlet to the people you need to see it, right? And that I think involves two strategies. One is constant, nonstop digital advertising, that where you're you're taking information that you know matters to people and you know you want them to see, and pay to show it to them. And the other one is taking a lot of the strategies that Buffy and others in the Obama campaign revolutionized in terms of organizing, and moving a lot of that online, mm-hmm. and getting people to connect with the people in their like every person who supports my campaign, where I be a person running for something, would which I will never be, uh, would be is someone who has a supercomputer in their pocket and on average a couple hundred Facebook friends, some of whom and so weapon taking your people and turning them into your messengers. Like truth tellers. Basically truth tellers, right? Because they may not believe something that they read in the New York Times if because someone has been tweeting that the New York Times is failing and the enemy of the people for a while now. But they may believe if you tell them because you're their nephew, you're their dentist, you're their you were on their soccer team, whatever it is. And so using creating a massive rapid response force of your supporters using their phones, I think is a fundamental strategy for 2020 that I hope people use. And so this idea of going from kind of going away from like trying to starve the story to actually going out hard, Mm -hmm. telling the truth, how do we navigate that with Trump when he can suck up all the oxygen in the room and he says crazy shit, sorry, but it's true. We we can swear here. And right. It's the paperback version. We can swear. (laughs) Um, You know, how do you navigate that without letting him dominate the narrative all the time? I mean, this is the uh, I think this is the question that is going to be at the heart of whoever our Democratic nominee is, how they deal with it. My view of it is, is that you have to like Trump's superpower as a politician is that he can make everyone talk about what he wants you to talk about. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it is the making everyone talk about a caravan of women and children that he turned into a. MS-13 march on Texas, right? Like he, and the media follows along because he's the president, but also we can have a lot of conversation about how media economics lead them into a pro-Trump news cycle, but he can, he can change the 
convert political conversation. And it is, I think, we hear this a little bit with in debates about how the Democrats are handling this in Congress is, well, Trump wants to talk about this. And like, well, we want to talk about health care. And it's like, it, it, like, it's not reasonable for, to ask politicians to like ignore what the president says. Yeah. Like, it's just that that's the nature of the beast. So what I always like advise Democratic candidates to do is, is to call out the game Trump is playing. Right. So Trump wants to talk about the caravan. And so instead of like falling into his trap and then saying, well, no, the caravan is really women and children and our policies are this and Democrats are also for strong borders, like that's all fine. But now you're having an immigration conversation and only an immigration conversation as opposed to talking about the other things. So I would say to a Democrat, Trump is like what I would tell him to say is <clears throat> Trump is lying to you. He's trying to scare you. Mm-hmm. Right. And what he's saying is not true. Why is he, why is he trying to pit Americans against each other? Cause he wants to distract you. What does he want to distract you from? The fact that he wants to take away healthcare for people with preexisting conditions, that his budget would uh, cut a trillion dollars from Medicare to pay for a tax cut for corporations. The fact that he is funneling millions of dollars from his, millions of taxpayer dollars into his hotels and businesses. And so it's like you call like what you have to say, like not just address what he's saying, but address why he's saying it and like then the move it from the territory. Issue. Yeah. yeah. And then painting the vision of what we think is the solution. Right. To yeah. get back to our, to the, to the, the terrain that is much more friendly to d- Democrats. So what is the role of traditional media in a 2020 environment? I mean, the, it is, it is still incredibly important, right? But it like the traditional mindset is that the there are two ways to communicate with voters: television ads and I'll put it this way: communicate with voters in mass, as opposed to the most important work, which is like knocking on doors and making phone calls. But two ways you get your message out: you either tell the press, and the press tells the public, or you pay t- for TV ads to do it. The 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 reach of the quote unquote traditional press has never been smaller than this before. And their credibility with voters, both on the left and the right has never been less than has never been uh, less than it is now. And so it is a mechanism by which campaigns need to communicate with voters, but it should be only one tool in a larger toolbox that includes social media, uh, digital advertising, um, online organizing, a whole set of things as opposed to just, like we cannot – if CNN and New York Times are the primary ways in which we're going to get our message out, we will lose again. Right. And and how – you know, if you're I – mean, a lot of our friends are running the one of the 25 campaigns, yes. folks that are running for president. You know, and I, I've talked to some of them and some of the challenges they also talk about is, you know, a lot of these media outlets have lost press corps, right? The press yeah. corps is dwindling. And, you know, you have one reporter covering like four or five races. Yeah. They're not like how it was before when we were doing this where it was like – a bunch of people following Obama and that press corps is with us the whole time. Yeah. How as a candidate, do you even navigate that aspect of it? I think what you should be, I think you have to have a strategy that is more, I almost think there's an entire reordering of how you think about your campaign. And it's supposed like, I've been the communications director on a number of campaigns as the communications director, my job, like the title is communications, but what my job really meant was, how does the my candidate get their message out through the press? What interview do we do? What time do we hold our events to make sure it gets in the local news? Which reporters are we going to brief about our policy in advance so we get more coverage? It's all your press strategy. And now you have to have a more holistic version of how are we persuading the set of voters that we have determined are the ones we need to convince to get 270 electoral votes mm-hmm. or to get enough delegates to be the nominee. And so you have to think about it in terms of sometimes that way will be um, through the traditional press. And maybe a different way to think about it is I would think about it less about this is our press strategy, this is not press strategy, is who are the audiences that we need to reach and what is the best way to reach them? Mm-hmm. In some cases, it'll be the New York Times. In some cases, it'll be through people's friends on Facebook. In some cases, it'll be ads on Google. In other cases, it'll be an ESPN interview and just try to segment out your audience, like segment out your audiences and target them directly as opposed to just we, I, this is like a, a huge like pet peeve. And I've been like screaming about this for a long time, but I've been in political communications for 20 years. The org, the, the structure of campaign communications departments has barely changed in 20 years, even though the 20 year period in which I've been in politics is the greatest change in how humans communicate with each other 
since the invention of the printing press. And so the fact that we are doing things the same way suggests that we are missing a massive opportunity to communicate with people, particularly young people, who use, who think of media entirely differently than the way our communications operations are set up. Basically, we have, Democrats have a base of younger voters and a campaign apparatus designed to reach older voters, which seems like a mistake. A mismatch. Yeah. yeah. And do you think the tech platforms have really taken responsibility and have figured out a way? No. To, yeah. I don't even know what the rest of this question is, but the answer is no. <laughs> I agree. Okay. <laughs> I would like, I'll explain that for a sec, which is I think that there are well-meaning people in a lot of the companies who want to fix these problems. And in part because they want to do the right thing, and in part because also it has not been particularly great business to be associated with the fall of democracy. Like, that's a branding problem. Uh, <laughs> but there is a fundamental problem is that the algorithms as constructed in a lot of these platforms reward the worst behavior. Right. And they, right. who's they, the loudest, who's saying who's the, the loudest, say the things. most outrageous thing. Yeah. And to change that is to basically take out the bottom of the overall business. So there are th like, there are certainly things that can and should be done to get rid of fake accounts, uh, bots, having more like the fact that you could have in 2016, a couple of teenagers in Macedonia, I think just putting up fake news in order to make money. Um, and finding out the best way to make money was to make fake news that was bad about Hillary Clinton so Trump accounts would would repost it. Like those things are mostly tractable. It's a, I mean, the Russians are quite smart and they're going to find new things. Like that stuff wants to get done. But the underlying problem that the fuel of much of the internet is outrage. Mm -hmm. And that out, and that, that, that algorithm benefits candidates who run on an outrage platform, which is Republicans and in the Trump world, it is the, it is, it is a perfect match with the Trump message. And that is not a problem that seems to be solvable because that really requires inward looking at what the, the overall project is, not just a few things you can tinker with here or there. So who do you think of the democratic candidates is effectively using social media the best? <sighs> I think like it's everyone is sort of no one seems to be doing it poorly necessarily. And people have moments, right? Like as an over just from an, it, it's, it's, it's rare that someone would have, be running a good campaign and have a good, but a bad social media strategy and someone would be running a bad campaign, a great campaign, and have a bad social media strategy because they all kind of flow together. Like I think Elizabeth Warren has done a very good job mm -hmm. in because it, her strategy has been authentic to herself. I mean, the fact that Mayor Pete Buttigieg went from the is the mayor of the eighth largest city in Indiana or whatever it is and <laughs> is in the top ish tier of Democratic candidates is a sign that he has an understanding of not just like social media in the sense that he has good tweets, but how communications happens in a important environment. Um, you know, so I think people have done some some are better than others. The younger yeah. Candidates seem to be a little more savvy about it. Um, but people are, the thing that I worry about some is that people are just constantly chasing virality for virality's sake. Mm -hmm. Like even, uh, I can't remember, it was in an interview today, Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota was, she had a joke about one of her policies, which I think was, was like a K, like pre K through high school program that she, maybe that she originally called All the Way with Amy. And she made a joke that if she should reannounce that because she might go viral, because and the joke being because I need to go viral now because you need to gain attention, right. and that's that is a, it's a Amy Klobuchar who is surprisingly funny. Um, people haven't <laughs> met her, but is uh, like th that is a very self aware statement of what it is like to campaign in a crowded field in the age of the internet, which is you do sort of need moments that go viral. The question is, can you make those moments authentic to yourself? Do they actually advance your strategic objective? Or are they just like virality? For They're all looking for them. All yeah. the candidates are looking yeah. for these moments to break out right yeah. now. And it's yeah. kind of funny when they like, they think they have one and they just, they're really trying too hard to tell you it's a viral moment. Right. Like if a candidate campaign staffer tweets, this is so-and-so's moment and they put moment in all caps, like you're trying too hard. It's like if a tree falls in a forest. Yes, that's yeah, right. exactly. Yes. So, um, and looking at the field, 
what do you think we need to win, like in terms of the elements of a candidate who can really get us over the finish line? Well, there, we are stuck as Democrats are wont to do in a vigorous but self-defeating debate about are we going to have a progressive who can turn out new voters or are we going to have a moderate who can persuade mm-hmm. people in the middle? And the reason why that – there are two reasons why that debate is stupid. One, it has the, uh, it has the false premise that a progressive message can't win over people in the middle, which Barack Obama's two electoral landslides would suggest otherwise. But also it – yes, it is true that if we were a true democracy and elected our – chose our presidents based on who got the most votes, then you could have this debate because it's like if you could just turn out more – Democrats in New York and San Francisco and L.A., you could make up for losing voters in the middle. But we unfortunately don't do that. We have the Electoral College. So the only formula that's going to get us to 270 is persuading some group of voters who either voted for Trump in 2016 or voted for a third party candidate, Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, to vote for the Democrat and turn out some of the this number is going to drive you crazy. Four million people who voted for Obama in 2012 who did not vote in 2016. So we have to do both of those things because we have to – there are a lot of those voters who live in Florida. They live in Miami and Dade County, places like that. So you can get Democrats who didn't vote there. But we also – in states like Wisconsin, because of the work that Buffy and other people have done over the years, we have – like we're running out of new voters there, right? So we have – like we're going to have to get some people in the middle to do – do it. So I, like what I'm looking for is a candidate who has a progressive message that is widely appealing yeah. and, is, and can tell a story about America, about the stakes that we are in, right? And it is – and a lot of these candidates have pieces of this, but we, we have become – I describe it as uncomfortably numb to what is happening, right? It is – we have a white supremacist – authoritarian who's committed multiple crimes in the white house. And that feels almost normal now. Almost not really, but it's like if someone had told you that five years ago, you'd be packing your bags for Canada, but that is where we are. But it's, but it is actually, I think much bigger than the particular problem in the white house, which is for a very long time, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have been engaged in a very aggressive, very well-funded, very smart strategy to deal with one fact, which is, the Republican base is getting smaller. The Democratic base is getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And so democracy, as we fundamentally understand it in this country, is being undermined. Your vote counts less than it ever has before. Not just because you live in California, but anywhere in this country. Your political power has been so diluted by things like Citizens United. Mm-hmm. And what the, the end goal of the Mitch McConnell um, Koch Brothers project is a plutocratic conservative minority ruling a progressive, diverse majority. And that is where we were headed. And I want a presidential candidate who can speak to the stakes of Venmo. Because I think the only way you're going to be able to get new people to turn out and persuade people that there was something better than this is to raise the stakes on this election. So who do you think that is? (laughs) (laughs) I I honestly wish I knew. Honestly, no one has come close. Like Everyone has had... Well, not everyone. There are some exceptions. But a lot of the top tier-ish candidates. And I'll divide the tier this way. If you make, if you have make, it, if you make it to the debate in September, then I, you can be in the top tier. And basically, the, the, for people who don't know, the DNC has well-meaning but somewhat esoteric um, guidelines for how you qualify for the debate because they wanted to not let anyone in but not also put their thumb on the scale for the establishment candidates. And the requirements to get in the debate go get much harder for the next one in September. And so as of right now, eight candidates have qualified for it, I think. And that is Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar. I said Kamala, right? Yes. Yeah. So those eight have done it. So, And I think in most of those eight have shown some moments were they a couple? I think Julian Castro was like one poll away from making it, and Andrew Yang is the same. So that might end up being our ten. Um, the I think each a lot of those camps have shown some moments, right? Like obviously Kamala Harris's debate performance uh, two debates ago, or one 
in the first debate was astounding. It was mm-hmm. probably the single best debate performance I've ever seen a candidate have. Elizabeth Warren has run the best campaign of anyone in this field, I think, objectively. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, Pete Buttigieg's rise from um, where he where he was to where he is is incredible. I thought, uh, I don't mean, I don't know how to say it. Like it's the, I think like Beto O'Rourke last weekend talking, addressing reporters about how they're treating Trump. I thought it was a very powerful moment. Bernie Sanders has been steady and driven. Like he's basically, he's won the ideas primary. So we have a lot of people doing lots of things. I don't think anyone's put it all together, mm. but that doesn't yet give me pause because at this point in 2007, as you and I painfully know, mm. Barack Obama was losing to Hillary Clinton by 30 points and had not – he didn't really nail his sort of message for the for that campaign until November of that year. And that's when it really took off. So we have some – And he wasn't very good at the debates either. No, he was not. He was not a good debater. That was not – and there were like 25 of them too. It yeah. was like – Every week we would like do a few things right. We'd have a good day, and then there'd be another debate. We get knocked on our ass and start all over again. So you slog through the the summer is always the slog. Oh yeah, too. yeah, yeah. We had well, well we have a, a question from the audience, which is in this vein, which I don't know that you're going to want to answer. But what is your dream Democratic ticket for 2020 <laughs> for the two of them? And like, do you see the vice presidential candidate in this cohort? Probably. I or does it depend on. It sort of depends on. I think. It sort of depends on who the nominee is. Like, if if I were to pick a vice presidential candidate who is not currently in the field, mm-hmm. who I would put money on if we were like in Vegas, you could bet long odds. I would pick Stacey Abrams, who ran in Georgia, who is his brilliant, a superstar. Best. I think could put Georgia in play potentially, depending on how the election's shaping up. Um, so it, there's a chance, and we can talk about the disturbingly high odds of a brokered convention at some point, but presuming you don't have, like, you pick someone outside of the field, I think I would put Stacey Abrams high on that list. Because mm-hmm. the thing you people have to remember is, like, you would say, like, Sherrod Brown, if you're picking someone else, you'd say Sherrod Brown, progressive from Ohio, would do it, would be great, and I love Sherrod, but he's a Democratic senator in a state with a Republican governor, and so, which is why this is, Elizabeth Warren is unlikely to be anyone's vice president because there's a Republican governor of Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts has a law that you could elect someone in a special in 180 days, I think it is. But I don't think any Democratic president wants to give up the chance of a Democratic majority right. for their first 180 days. And what are your thoughts on the Senate, taking back the Senate? I mean, it is possible. I mean, it, like it's very there are some very winnable races. Mark uh, Kelly in Arizona. Yes. Mark Kelly in Arizona. Yes. Uh, I mean, if you look at it, so there are the, the most the Democrats that defend one tough seat, Doug Jones in Alabama. And that's going to be hard unless Rory Moore wins the nomination. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. He's running again. Um, uh, so but that's that's hard. But then obviously we have uh, Susan Collins, um, who had the greatest drop in her approval of any senator um, since uh, Brett Ka- the Brett Kavanaugh hearing and all the other terrible things she has done. Um, we have, there's a potential pickup in Arizona, potential to North Carolina. There's a potential pickup in Georgia, Iowa. There's Colorado being Cory Gardner being who's generally also terrible uh, in Colorado, which is a state that has gotten much bluer. It is a real, but so it is possible. It is certainly possible. The thing that gives me hope for it is traditionally the way if Democrats have a good presidential year. The races all tend to tip in one direction. Like when Obama won in 2012, there were, there were like six close Senate races going into Election Day, and they all went in one mm-hmm. direction. Even North Dakota went in that direction. Same thing, on the ticket. same thing in 08. And then in 2016, like as bad as it was that Hillary lost, it was very, very bad. We also lost the Wisconsin-Pennsylvania Senate races, which would have been critical to have for a whole host of reasons. And so they – because they tipped, right? So – like, we're either going to have a great day or a terrible day, election day. I don't think there's going to be a huge mixed bag. And what do you think about some of the candidates deciding they're not going to go on Fox News in terms of, like, trying to be able to communicate to folks that we should be, but then also Fox News is just a bunch of bullshit propaganda, you know? So I hate Fox News. Yep. I do not think candidates should go on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Well, let me put it – let me say it more clearly. 
I, I, I wrote a whole chapter in the book, which I think is titled, if I remember correctly, uh, yes, it is called, oh, my editor made me change it. So the actual title here is Fox in parentheses and friends is destroying America, but it was originally Fox and friends is fucking up America, um, <laughs> which is what it was in the galley copy. And there was a pro- Fox news personality who sent me a note. Uh, asking if I would come on Fox News to talk about the book, and it was very nice. And so, just for fun, I had my publisher send her the galley. Uh, <laughs> she never called back. Um, but I, so but there, we had there this, is a cohort of people that watch Fox News, right? I mean, yes. a lot of them, like, should we be communicating to those folks, or do you yes. think it's through a different. Yes, avenue. we should be communicating with people who some people watch Fox News. I just don't think we should communicate with them on through Fox, Fox News. News. Yeah, it's like it's not a huge group of people. Tucker Carlson, in what we sometimes at Pod Save America call the White Nationals Variety Hour, <laughs> gets three million uh, listeners or viewers. Right, three million viewers. So that that is a lot for cable, and it's their numbers that MSNBC and CNN would kill for. But it's not a lot of people, and the overwhelming majority of them are uh, Republican died in the middle voters will never get. I've like, we live in this world of digital, me- of digital media and other things. And so like the, the debate around Fox News, which I got pretty engaged in when de- some Democrats started doing these Fox News town halls earlier this year. Bernie Sanders did one, Amy Klobuchar did one, Mayor Pete did one. And I understand from the perspective of those campaigns why they would do it. It's like it's going to get a lot more media attention than doing something on MSNBC. And you can say, yeah, I may be a a liberal, but I went to Fox News and I got a standing ovation like Bernie Sanders, who did a great job and his did. What what bothered me about it was there are a lot of organizations, including a group called Sleeping Giants, who have spent a lot of time putting pressure on Fox News' advertisers, these companies who say – like diversity is one of our core values and we love, you know, and we were going to celebrate pride month and African American history month, but then they advertise on Tucker Carlson's show where he is talking about basically echoing the message of white supremacist sites like daily stormer or whitehouse.gov. And he um, is, uh, and, um, and putting pressure on them to get them to stop advertising a lot for a long time. Tucker Carlson and Hannity were having, Basically, if you watch their shows, which I don't recommend, like, their commercials would be for other Fox shows because Fox couldn't sell out the block. And so then these Democrats agreed to do these town halls, which then gave Fox the argument to go to their advertisers and say, we're not so bad. Even Bernie Sanders will come on our show. And so like, I think this is a good faith disagreement on strategy. My view is that Fox is one of the most destructive forces in American life, and they're responsible for a lot of the problems we have in this country, that they, they are, a, they enable white supremacy. That is part of what they do. Like, for, like, yes, we have, Shep Smith says nice things every once in a while, and Chris Wallace sometimes will ask tough questions, but those people, but they are very highly paid propaganda beards. Like, they are there to be the exception so that we can't prove the rule. And I think Democrats should take, call that out, take it on, and not enable it. And but that doesn't mean we don't communicate with the middle of America, conservative America. Right. We should go to those rural areas where Fox is number one station campaign. That was Obama's strategy. He would always try to go to the places where he was not as well known or not as well liked to show people to try to what he would say to take off the horns that Fox News had put on him. Right. To see that even if you disagree with him, he was a good person. Right. And I think Democrats would do that. There are other ways to reach them. But if you play Fox's game, you're going to lose. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. I remember doing uh, taking the president uh, in 2008 to rural Missouri. Yeah. You know, and we went into the heart of some of those challenging areas. So you started off the evening um, talking about how you were actually optimistic for the first time on an election day in 2016. And now, like me, you choose to live in a constant state of fear and paranoia at all times. Uh, my which natural is, state. Which is my strategy it, yes. as well. Yeah. Um, 
Can you talk about what you've learned from losing a campaign and kind of what the most valuable lesson is and how do we take that lesson and apply it to the 2020 environment? The, this one is really, so in the book I walk through sort of, I didn't try to explain what happened in 2016 because I wasn't, I didn't work on that campaign. I wasn't there, but I, and I, and people have told that story and we've, people can debate strategy and things like that, you know, until the end of time. But like, what were some of the lessons that I took from it? And the caveat I give to it is 2016 is in some ways a black swan event, right? Like if you were to run a simulation of that election, a hundred thousand times. Trump maybe wins five times, right? Like you need Russia to get involved. You need Jim Comey to feel a bizarre desire to unburden himself at the least opportune time. <laughs> you need Hillary Clinton's campaign to have an aversion to Wisconsin in the fall. Like there's a whole set of things that happened at the worst time. There was, I mean, there's been reports about a dip in the economy in the last part of 2016 that we we didn't know about then. We know about now. That affected things. You had insurers deciding to tell people their Obamacare premiums may go up at the same time. So, like, all these things happened. And Hillary Clinton lost a race by 70,000 votes spread across three states. And so, how does that, like, what do you take from something that may be this sort of black swan event? But at the same time, you gotta, we lost, right? Like, we did not win, and we, it was an election that we should have won. And Donald Trump is President of the United States. And that is a problem. And so what can we take from that? So I had a couple of things that where I think Democrats sort of lost the thread in that election. And one of them was we chased Trump down too many rabbit holes, right? Like this is sort of where the media – we let the media tell us what our message is, right? Where Because everyone wants – it is the search for coverage and retweets, which is sort of the same thing in this day and age. And so what is the best way to get coverage? Respond to Trump. Say Trump's a racist, say Trump is corrupt, say Trump is stupid. Trump says this about Hillary. She tweets out, delete, delete your account. That's the most retweeted thing in history at the time. And, but that you lose the story, right? You are not, you are trying, you want to tell your story, not respond to Trump's story. And so that, that, I think that was one lesson from it. The second is that you, we have access in politics now and anyone who works in tech or business to so much data, right? We can know so much about not just the population at large, but individual people that we are trying to target. You can build a model of a voter of a certain age who lives in a certain block, in a certain precinct, in a certain state, and define with pretty great confidence what issue they care about. So it becomes very you get to the point where your campaign says, well, we know that this person who lives in Cleveland, who's a Latinx female over 50, cares about healthcare. So we're going to message that person on healthcare. Then we know this other person who is a college student uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, who cares about climate change. And we're going to message that person on climate change. And what happens is you lose the story, right? You're off trees, no forest. And, Campaign, the fundamentals of campaigns, no matter what the technology is, whether it's 2020, 2008, or you know, sometime prior to that, is the best campaign, candidates, the best campaigns tell a compelling story about America. Right? That is ultimately Barack Obama's gift. Right? He's funny. He's very smart. He can be charming. He gives a good speech. But what he really is is not so much the delivery of the story. It's the composition of the story. And – like when we talk about like 2016 candidate, 2020 candidates, what I want is someone who can tell a compelling, inspirational story about this country. And it is the same story whether you tell it at a fundraiser in San Francisco or at a diner in Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? It is the same. And like I think we lost that because we let Trump define the parameters of the conversation. And we were so focused on the individual things people wanted to say that there wasn't an overall story about what Trump meant how someone like Trump ended up on the cusp and then becoming president and what the consequences of that would be. And I think there, it's, a, it's always a story about America, less about the candidate mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes told through the story of Right, the exactly. Life. Like yeah. Barack Obama's story about being— Like the 2004 convention speech. Yes, yes. That, that, yeah. Like he is telling a broader story about America in which he is a vessel for that story, right? And like I, and, I've, and I've said this before that it, like— 
when we find a candidate who tells that story about America, Trump is a part of that story, but he's not the main star, right? Like it, ha- it has to be about something bigger than that. Because mm-hmm. the problem we face and the reason we have Trump is a problem much bigger than Trump. Mm-hmm. We have a question from the audience. Um, there's a narrative that some candidates are more electable than other high polling candidates. Um, what do you tell people who feel voting for their preferred primary candidate is a waste because of the electability factor? No one knows what electability is. It is a fake thing that primarily – it's a fake thing that um, pundits come up with that basically means white male, right? That's what it means because the only way in which the, the sort of the political media can interpret elections is through the whims of imaginary white middle class – middle or working class people in the middle of the country. Right. Like this is the grand this is, I think, a little bit of what was got people so fired up about uh, would better or work ask the reporters like, what the fuck, which is there's we spend so much time in political coverage the last three years focused on the people who are inspired by Trump's divisive rhetoric and so little time spent on the people targeted by that rhetoric. Right. We care more about, quote unquote, swing voters than non-voters who are actually a Swing voters is a small group of people in this country. Non-voters is like half the country. And we should learn something about those people and figure out why they're not voting, what is stopping them. And when you expand the aperture to look at electability through the concept of the people who, not just people who voted before, people who could vote, I think it's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. And the only way we know whether someone's electable is whether they won an election. And so <laughs> right. you might as well vote for the person you want and find out where, where you go from there. Right. Um, no one knows anything is the main point, right? <laughs> Do not trust anyone. Just go with your gut. I promise you it's better than what some person on CNN or even Positive America will tell you. <laughs> I think we all feel that after 2016. Yes. We're like, oh, yes. we know nothing. Okay. Um, what do you think the role of the Democratic Party is? And, you know, I think within the sort of center to left, there's some folks that have a distrust of the party, right? Um, what is the role of the party in a, in a 2020 environment? How does it, how is it going to help us get over the finish line? It's always this question that like, what is the party, right? Like some people think when you say the democratic party should do this, people say the DNC, right? The democratic national committee, which I hate to tell you people is like two floors of a building, right? There is, there is no like giant secret yep. democratic party justice league headquarters <laughs> where like, Schumer, Pelosi, Tom Perez, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton all get together and make decisions. Like the, the Democratic Party is all of us. It's the people of DNC. It's the people who work in Capitol Hill. It's Nancy Pelosi. But it's swing left and it's indivisible and it's mom's demand. It is like a wide group of people who care about progressive issues. Now, we could disagree on how progressive or how moderate or on Medicare for all or Medicare for America, whatever else. But like, that's like, there is no group of people who are going to come solve this problem for us. If you are a Democratic voter, if you're someone who votes Democratic and you are upset about the way this country is going and you want to do something about it, the only people who are going to solve that problem is you. Like there is no... It's us. It's us. us. Yes, that is the thing. And so I think the Democratic Party... We just have to recognize that we're all part of it, and there is not some institution or establishment that makes some great – like there's no whiteboard somewhere with a plan, just FYI. Uh, another audience question. What advice would you give young people, college grad, a recent college grad, about steps to take to pursue a career like yours, Dan Pfeiffer? <laughs> or Buffy's for sure. <laughs> uh, the If you get an opportunity to work on a campaign – I highly recommend it. I think it is a great way to jump into politics with both feet. It is a place where there is always more work than there is people. And if you are smart and you work hard and you're in the right environment, you could be have a chance to do a, to take on tasks and learn things that far exceed your station in life. Right? You can be you know very young doing important things. Right? There's less of a, it's less hierarchical. And when picking, whether it's a campaign or a ballot in it, a candidate or a ballot initiative or an organization or a member of Congress, the only thing that I would say to people is choose the job you want to have right now, not the job you think you want to have five years from now, mm-hmm. right? 
Like when Buffy and I both went to work for Barack Obama in early 2007, the odds of him winning were quite long. <laughs> a lot of people, we've been in democratic politics for a long time. A lot of people thought we were insane and basically ending our careers. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to, you're not going to work for the Clintons. You're going to go work for Barack Obama. He is almost certainly going to lose like what a flight of fancy, but we went to work for Barack Obama and we both had opportunities to work for other candidates because he was the person we wanted to win, the person because we thought would win. And that is like you're never – there is no good campaign that is filled with people who think it is a path to the next job. It's only people who care passionately about the person or the issue they're working on in that moment. Yeah, I've always said campaigns, like when you walk into that office, they don't care if you come from a respectable family or if you have a college degree or if you have money or any of those things. It's like, are you going to go roll up your sleeves and work your butt off is what campaigns are looking at. And there's a ton of opportunity there. Like our friend David Pluff, who ran Obama's campaign, didn't get his college degree until long after Barack Obama was president. Right. Uh, (laughs) I didn't realize he'd finally completed his degree. (laughs) I think it was kind of honorary. Honorary, (laughs) right. (laughs) You elected a president, you can have those last six credits. Uh, another audience question. What's the best way to get creative, helpful ideas into the hands of the upper echelons of a campaign? Huh. I've been working on that for a long time. <laughs> no one listens to you. Dan, yeah, I know. It's yeah. very hard. Start a podcast and start screaming into a microphone. Um, I, I don't know that I would start at the upper echelons, right? I would start with the people, like whatever your point of intersection is with the campaign, tweet at them. I think that's actually sometimes works. Uh, but if you would, if you know a volunteer, or someone tell them your idea and hope it works its way up. This is the and if you see if you go, to, I would also go to campaign events and particularly at this stage of the game for a lot of these candidates, you get a chance to shake their hand or say something and tell them your idea. Like there's no, uh, uh, there's no, there are a thousand, there are millions of stories I would say of people who went from nowhere to the tops of campaigns because they had an idea. Dan Wagner, who was Obama's uh, data guru in 2012 was making volunteer phone calls in our Chicago office just randomly at night. And he was useful because he spoke Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. And could do other things. And eventually ended up creating the data model that helped Barack Obama win the election in 2012. And just like he was a guy who was volunteering. So show up at the office and tell some people your ideas. Well, and This American Life just did a story about how these candidates are so approachable right now because they're just dying to talk to people. There's 25 of them, so they'll yeah. like... You know. yeah. Right now, they <laughs> need you more than you need them. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, another question from the audience. How do we get voters and candidates to focus on the importance of the federal courts? Big sigh. Yeah, big sigh. <laughs> I am just taken back to this moment. I did this panel conversation before the election in at a college outside of Pittsburgh. And it was like me and this Republican uh, person who was never Trump. And we did our thing and we were talking about the election and the importance of Pennsylvania. And then after the event, uh, some students came up to me and they said they were thinking of voting for Jill Stein. And I tried to, and I asked them why. Um, And they said, well, we really care a lot about Citizens United. And Bernie Sanders said he would appoint a Supreme Court justice. Bernie Sanders had done something a lot of people had not done before, which is say, put a litmus test on a Democrat had done this, say, I will only appoint justices who I know will overturn Citizens United. And Hillary Clinton had not done that as explicitly as Bernie Sanders had, although I think she had made it pretty clear. And so I tried to tell these people, these students, I was like, I promise you that Hillary Clinton is not appointing anyone who supports Citizens United. Like, that is not a thing that's going to happen. But they didn't – she didn't say it explicitly, so they didn't believe her. And so I think we actually have to be much more aggressive about this. And I would do a couple things. One, Democratic candidates should have a whole bunch of litmus tests. we got to explain to people – because they exist anyway. Barack Obama, very – people would say – can you guarantee that you will not appoint a justice who – will you, so will you guarantee you'll, you'll appoint a justice who supports Roe v. Wade? Barack Obama, being the constitutional scholar that he is, would not – he would respect the traditional role of the selection process and say, I don't have litmus tests, but I would only appoint people who I think have respect for precedent. 
which is what he's saying is, of course he's not fucking nominating someone who's overturning Roe versus Wade, but he's not going to say it. I think we should just say it because it's they exist. And so Democrats should say, I'm not appointing someone who wants to overturn. I'm only appointing someone who will oppose this United, supports Roe versus Wade, thinks that the Heller decision on guns that makes it uh, easy that upheld the Second Amendment in a progressive way, whatever, like we should be explicit about it. And the second thing we should do that I think I've tried to pitch this to people also struggling to get things in the hands of the right people is Trump did. One of the reasons Trump won the White House is when conservatives were very nervous about who he would be, he like what kind of president he would be. He put out a list of it was like 15 or 20 potential Supreme Court justices. And it was Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and this other parade of horribles of right wing federal society bots. Um I think I would like to see a Democrat do that. I'd like to see a Democrat say, here are 15 people who would be on my list if I had a vacancy. And we should go beyond the Harvard Law Supreme Court clerk path. We should have a much more diverse in background and experience list. But like, I'd like to see people do that. I think because if you can put a an idea, if you can see who it is under a term other than respect precedent, then I think we'd have a better chance to make people care about that. And we all have, we, it's a come upon all of us in politics with any measure of platform to talk about this and connect it to the Senate, which is, yes, this is true of our Democratic nominee and who Hillary would have appointed or who Trump appointed, but it's also like, this is a thing I promise you, which is if Clarence Thomas takes a step, let's say Democratic candidate X is elected, if on inauguration day, Clarence Thomas sprains his ankle and decides he does not want to serve in the Supreme Court with crutches, in the Republican Senate, Mitch McConnell will hold that Senate seat open for four years. Mm-hmm. Like that, like that is where we are right now. And the other thing I think important is important in this is I think Democrats should be aggressive about proposing court reforms. It is insane that it is basically a lottery of whoever happens to be president, even if they lost the popular vote, well, I don't know, five million votes, gets to shift the balance of the court for years. Brett Kavanaugh. When Brett Kavanaugh is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's age, my daughter will be in her early 30s. She's 14 months old right now. Like that is what we are dealing with. And so we have to we have to make this a bigger issue to persuade people why it's important to vote, even if they have some concerns either from the left or the right about the Democratic candidate and why the Senate is so important. Another audience question, considering the poor approval ratings of Congress, worse than Trump, should Pelosi, quote, reset the Congress and revert to pre-Newt Gingrich structure, i.e. smaller, more effective committees, bipartisan committees uh, to review proposed legislation disbanded by Newt, et cetera, like structurally change Congress? I worked really hard to never have to work on the House of Representatives, so I'm not <laughs> completely familiar about exactly how their stuff is um, set up. I think low approvals of Congress has to do – is mostly driven by low approvals from the own party of the people in charge of Congress, right? Like Nancy, if Nancy Pelosi was – had the approval if – or the Democrats in Congress were approved by most Democrats, approval rates would be much higher than Trump's, mm-hmm. right? And because there's like – it's very hard for the Democrats who have – in the middle of a very contentious debate about impeachment um, and – People want results. And they are, while we can quibble about some of the strategy and decisions, and I certainly have done that, they have limited power to do it. And so I don't, I don't, I think the problem is more like there, I'm sure there are lots of things that would make Congress run better. Uh, and I'm very interested to hear more ideas about that. But the political problem that Democrats in Congress face is related to things bigger than what is happening because they can't pass laws because Mitch McConnell was in the Senate and Trump is in the White House. Um, talking specifically on a, one specific policy issue, guns. You know, we've obviously had these horrific shootings one after another. Obviously, this past weekend was was terrible. But I do feel like a sea change in terms of the electorate on the issue, right? And our federal legislators, specifically in the Senate, they haven't chosen to take up H.R. 8, which the House passed, the background checks bill. Um, how do you see that changing and shifting and, you know, assuming we do well in 2020, do you think that's going to be one of the top issues that we move on? And what other issues do you think we'd move on? Well, I think um, I am a very, very strong and sometimes overly aggressive advocate for elimination of the filibuster. Because even if we were to, let's say we take the White House and the Senate, and there is zero chance that there will be 60 votes. Because if we take the Senate, we have 51, 52 votes if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. There are not 
eight Republicans are voting for a single actual effective gun control bill, right? They're not voting for the assault weapons ban. They're not voting for the background check bill. And so if we take the power, we have to um, get rid of the filibuster to be able to do the things we want to do. And, and I think when we talk about how America is becoming less democratic, small d, guns is the best example. 90% of people want background checks. Huge majorities of people want an assault weapons ban. And the tragic evidence for why that is happening is before us. And we nothing happens. Didn't happen after Newtown. Didn't happen after Las Vegas and after Parkland. Seems unlikely that something big is going to happen here. And it's because our government is set up in a way that is diluting the will of the people. And I think Democrats should actually get more aggressive, Mm -hmm. right? Like the HR8, it's a good piece of legislation. It is good. The world would be much better off to do it. If you can save one life, we should pass these bills. But there's still some fundamental thing. Like there are more aggressive proposals mm-hmm. that I think Democrats should start getting behind because the idea – like what stops us from being aggressive about – going as far as Cory Booker has gone on gun licensing or a gun buyback program like they had in Australia, which is how a sane country responds to a mass shooting, which is get – is change your laws fundamentally, get the guns off the street and not have as many mass shootings. Like Democrats don't embrace those. Mm-hmm. The House didn't pass an assault weapons ban because mm-hmm. it was too politically toxic. Like, that's crazy. And so, and we, the reason we have this fear is we're scared the NRA is going to demonize us. Well, I got news for you. The NRA is going to call, you could vote for every Republican bill, but against every gun control, and the NRA will still choose a Republican over you in your seat. And the pub, not only is the public on our side, the NRA is, is bark is louder, is tougher than its bite. It's also in shambles right now. Yeah, I mean, just, it is in shambles, a particular set of shambles now as they're involved in a – turns out they were a massively corrupt organization. Who shocking. Would have, shocking. They're who corrupt. would have guessed that this group of well-meaning, yeah. Second Amendment-loving patriots would <laughs> be so corrupt? Um, but the, all, the energy is now on the side of For sure. the people fighting gun, gun control. And so I hope Democrats keep on this everywhere. You know, it is – Beto O'Rourke didn't win his Senate race. But he campaigned in Texas on an assault weapons ban, background checks, red flag laws. And I hope Democrats do that, whether they are campaigning like here in California or in Wisconsin. Like we cannot be scared of this because we we have the moral high ground and we actually have the popular position. The idea we would trim our sails in the face of those two factors is insane to me. Although I will say there's been a lot of movement at the state level on these. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that like that is both a incredibly positive thing and a reminder of why we need gun laws. Cause what happened in Gilroy where California has done all the right things yeah. is the guy who went to Arizona, right? Chicago, like the Republicans, like this is like the classic Fox news talking point. It's like Chicago has some of the best gu- toughest gun laws in the country. And there are shootings in Chicago all the time. Chicago borders, Indiana, which is like a gun market, right? Like, and people go across the border, they buy guns, come to Chicago and shoot them. And so, like, we should do all the things we can to make our state safe. And I think it's incredibly impressive what's happening here in California and what's happening in Washington and Colorado and Connecticut and places like that. But until we have a federal gun law, we are going to be right. at the mercy of these Republican states allowing you to buy assault weapons. Okay, get rid of the filibuster. I like it. Yes. That's, that's what we got to do. Any candidate. And take back the White House and the Senate. Yeah, any too. candidate who says <laughs> they are for a Green New Deal, Medicare for all, or gun control who is still for the filibuster is selling you a bill of goods because they are those things that will not be law in their first term, their second term, or any time until we make D.C., Puerto Rico, and about nine other places states. Uh, the like that like I think the people talk all the time about the divide in the Democratic Party right now is between liberals and moderates, and there is one for sure. Don't get me wrong. But I think the bigger divide is the people who understand the state of our democracy and those who don't. The people who are willing to propose aggressive, norm-shattering proposals like get rid of electoral college, get rid of the filibuster, court reform that take on and undo what the Republicans have done to our democracy for the last decade. And so you talk about, use the example of Beto being in Texas last cycle, having real kind of honest and truthful conversations in these redder parts of the the country. One of the audience members asked, how do we grow the local Democratic Party in these red areas? I think, you know, Buffy worked for Howard Dean back in the day. I did. I love Howard Dean. Thank you. And Howard Dean ran for DNC chair promising a 50-state strategy and that we were going to finally – 
we're going to campaign everywhere. We're going to invest in Alaska and we're going to invest in Idaho and everything else. And we're going to grow the party. And then, and he, I think Howard Dean very sincerely and legitimately tried to do that. But then push comes to shove. It's 2008, the end of his DNC term. Barack Obama's running for president. Now we got these seven states that are going to decide the presidential election. We better put money in those states. And that is always going to be the incentive of the DNC because the DNC chair or whoever else is in charge of the party at any one moment is being judged on the results of that election, not the results of what's going to happen in Alaska 10 years from now if we invest in the party. And so I sort of think we need grassroots donors and the many, many rich people running around this city and others to adopt state parties, right? Like I think we should have a program where a Democratic donor can adopt the Utah State Party to pick the state, right? And you're going to give seven bucks a month to the Utah State Party or 20 bucks a month, whatever you can give. And some rich person is going to say they're going to fund X, Y, and Z. And it's a 10-year plan, right? Like that we're going – our goal in 10 years is to win the state legislative races to try to tip the balance and really – like we can't – the DNC cannot and will not solve this problem. And donors are going to end – People are going to have to grow organizations because the best way you have to run the way you win races in a state is to run and lose a lot of races to build organization, volunteer lists, uh, improve the brand of the party, et cetera. And if we don't run candidates, we don't have money to do that. We won't. We're just going to be in the same cycle forever. And it is that bench. Yes. That, that lower That's level. Right. Yeah. That we have to invest in. Cause those are our folks that are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another audience question, has the rise of social media fake news turned the First Amendment into the tool of the enemies of truth uh, and liberties opposed to our bulwark against tyranny? Whoa. <laughs> That's deep. Yes. Yeah. Is it, yes. No, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the rise of – I think we should be very clear about something, right? The First Amendment says you have a – says many things, but it says you have the right to free speech. It does not mean you have a right to run a white supremacist conspiracy money-making channel on YouTube, right? Like a lot of times we are conflating free speech and people and access to platforms, and those are not the same thing. You don't have a right to have a column in The New York Times. You don't have a right to uh, appear on CNN whenever you want. You don't have a right to violate the rules on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else. And so, like, we should protect free speech and particularly the free press part of the First Amendment. Um, but I think the right uses the First Amendment as a excuse to say and do horrible things on platforms, and we shouldn't stand for that. We should we should we should call it out and be aggressive about it. And we should push people to, if you were going to make like, there's a difference between a tech platform's right to monetize hate and, the, and a hateful person's right to stand on a street corner and have a peaceful protest. Those are two different things. And the right wants to conflate those things and they are not the same thing. So we have some final wrap up questions here with the last couple of minutes. Um, what podcasts do you listen to? <laughs> I mostly listen to um, sports podcasts. <laughs> that was like you totally dodged that question. No, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you specific <laughs> lists. Uh, Bill Simmons of The Ringer gave us our start in politics or in podcasting. Wouldn't be there without him. There is, during Game of Thrones, I listened to Binge Mode, a all-time great podcast. Um, there's a very uh, there's a lot of 76ers podcasts I listen to because I care about that team. Um, I've never listened to the Daily. I'm unfamiliar with its work. Oh, it's um, so good. The Daily's so good. <laughs> Every day, people say this to me all the time. Like Tommy is always like the Daily did this, and I'm like it's I've never so listened good. to it. Well, in the early early days of Pod Save America, we were really in a competition with the Daily on the iTunes charts, and I wasn't going to give them my downloads. <laughs> so. We won't tell Mike about Roe. I, I, I say it all the time. <laughs> I have no problem with it. Um, and then what are some of your favorite Twitter feeds you follow? Favorite? And like who's saying interesting things on Twitter these days? That's a, that's a great question. Um, there's sort of like different, like I think I would sort of categorize them in different ways. There's a group of 
sort of election analyst data journalists that I really follow a lot and I like get kind of deep into things. That includes people like obviously everyone knows Nate Silver, but Nate coming from the New York Times, a guy named Dave Wasserman and Amy Walters from the Cook Report really get in deep on some things that help us understand why things are happening. Um, I, you know, there's some people like some activists whose Twitter feeds I find to be very um, important and interesting. I mean, most notably among that is my friend Brittany Packnett, who's done a lot of stuff with Pots of America, who's been active on a host of issues. I think she is great. Um, Monica Lewinsky has a great Twitter feed. She's a superstar on Twitter. Um, there's, I think there's just like a lot of different voices and things. Like, and like I've really been following a lot of the people who are like activists on the ground and some of the things like Shannon Watts from mom's demand mm-hmm. is a really good one. Um, who else am I missing? Last question. How can folks be part of the victory in 2020? What should folks do? And we've got one minute. <laughs> pick the candidate you believe in best work for that person. If you can't pick a candidate, wait till we have a nominee and Knock on doors, make phone calls. If you can afford to give even a little bit, that helps. Send text messages. You can now, like, we live in this amazing world. You can hold a phone bank to call people in another state in your house. You can send postcards to voters. Like, everyone can find different, there are different ways, there are so many ways to be involved. And some people are more comfortable doing other things. Some people really like going door to door. I am not a person particularly comfortable <laughs> with that. My wife, who's sitting in the front row, is a field organizer by nature, and she, makes me do it and then makes fun of me for being so bad at it. When we go, <laughs> I am apparently not efficient. Um, you know, but some people find that intimidating. So they want to make phone calls. Some people hate the phone so they could do texting or stuff envelopes, like just find your campaign headquarters and go. If you have it in you, if you can travel somewhere, whether it is to Las Vegas or some state that might be a battleground state, that is great. But I would be remiss if I didn't say this, which is, We won the House in 2018 because of California. And everyone here in California was focused on that fact. I mean, we went to a canvassing event for Josh Harder in Modesto before the election. It was a sold-out canvassing training. I had never seen that before. They had to do two – there was – it was like we were at like our fancy restaurant. There were two seatings, like 700 people, and then the next 700 people got to come in. Because people here knew to care about California. And if we lose focus on that fact and only care about the other states, those races were really close. And now Trump's on the ballot. And that will jack up turnout. And these candidates have been, they were generic Democrats, and now they've had to vote for things. And so if we're not helping Katie Hill, Katie Porter, Josh Harder, and all the people who won what we used to call the Crooked Seven, like we could lose those seats. And so you're going to have to sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. Help a Democrat win in a battleground state and help uh, Democrats win here in California. We will close on that. Let's give a huge thank you to Dan Pfeiffer. Thank you. And you can buy his book here, and he will be signing the book here in a couple yes. of minutes. Yeah, yes. he'll stick around and for, for autographs. I'm Buffy Wicks, and on behalf of myself, Dan Pfeiffer, and the Commonwealth Club, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. That was fun. Yeah.